Prague 2020. History is happening right now. All over the world, the same story connected and highlighted by the toppling of monuments. Ozymandias is proud to offer part four of a five-part podcast series titled An Ordeal in Prague. The keystone of this series is the removal of Marshal Ivan Konev's Statue of Liberation, which on April 3rd, 2020, was removed from its perch in Prague. The Statue of Liberation, when it was built, why it was built, and the story of its removal involves two biographies, one of Marshal Ivan Konev himself and one of Vaslav Havel. Both of these men are 20th century giants, but their history continues as a 21st century drama. An ordeal in Prague, a clash of geographies, ideologies, and lasting legacies shows us the light of liberalism and the shadow of authoritarianism. Let's dive in. Dealing with sometimes the uncomfortable and always the historical, my name is Marcus, and this is Ozymandias. If you're still with me in part four, I'm assuming that you're going to stick with me through to part five to see the end of this. I want to come back very quickly to Marshal Ivan Konev. Remember the Soviet winter soldier, the lumberjack, kind of born into the peasantry, started from the bottom, now he's leading one of the largest professional armies in the world story, episode two. We're telling this part of two biographies from this century that are cascading into a monument tale. Uh, And what is a very interesting contrast is to think about Marshal Ivan Konev setting aside, you know, atrocities and setting aside which side he was on and which side he wasn't on, setting that aside. His biography, Born a Lumberjack story, is quite the contrast from our bourgeois uh, young man, Vaslav Havel. Today, we're going to go back from where we were on Vaslav Havel. We know that he's renowned. We know that he has a crescendo at the end of his biography. But what we didn't spend time on is what propelled Vaslav Havel to get there. And I think that that biographical look into his past with Marshal Ivan Konev's past in mind is interesting as they meet together at this Statue of Liberation conversation. Havel, he was born in 1936, the same year that Marshal Ivan Konev would have been graduating from the Moscow Military Elite Academy, where he is becoming to get his stripes as a military commander. He's got the head start on this on this century. Vaslav Havel is born in 1936. Now, 1936, Czechoslovakia, this is before the Nazi occupation. This is before 
individuals with educations and backgrounds and, you know, leanings towards democracy would have been plucked out of their homes and or by race or by religion, uh, um, you know, targeted and murdered um, by either the Nazis or then shortly after from the hard communists who also would have been plucking individuals and instead of, you know, sending those folks one direction, sending them to Siberia again, not a friendly place as far as history goes, but, you know, before this era of normalization, Prague is still Prague. Prague's been around in the Habsburg dynasty. You know, this corner of the world has been rich in tradition and history and lineage and education for, for a long time. Vaslav Havel, he is born in 1936. This is a good world for him at this point in time. He's born to good fortune. His father is, you know, in contrast to our lumberjack, uh, uh, um, the Soviet winter soldier, Ivan Konev. Vaslav Havel is born, uh, Vaslav's father is a wealthy businessman. Uh, the parents, the Havels, they have a broad circle of highly educated friends. They had a cook. They had a, a maid. There was a gardener. There was a chauffeur. And the Havels, they wanted their sons, Vaklev and Ivan, to graduate from an Oxford or from a Harvard. They were on their way. And the boys ended up, they go to boarding school. They have everything, the royal carpet laid out in front of them. But when the communists first take power, which is interesting, when the communists liberate Prague, as, you know, the statue would want you to believe, and as, you know, Vladimir Putin would contend, you know, in 2020 is still the case, We'll come back to that. 1948, when the communists and Marshal Ivan Konev arrive, you know, one day later, and we were joking earlier in the podcast episode one about you're doing your drive-by and you can kind of, you know, say goodbye and you've, you know, risen up and taken your city back against the Germans. And then you see the, you know, advancing Russian army and you say, hey, no thanks, guys, we're all set here. Um, well, when the communists decide to stay and take power, because that's what fits their story, not the people of Prague's, the Havel family properties were confiscated. And in an act of, think about this, reverse social engineering, now the Soviet leadership, the regime, barred bourgeois children like Vaklev from attending these boarding schools and attending better schools. Uh, Vaslav goes on to say, had it not been for the putsch, uh, which is an old German word for like the occupation, the suppression, uh, the take, the taking of power, had it not been for the putsch, Havel says, that he would have likely have gone on to study philosophy at a university. He would have attended lectures. He's being flippant here. He would have attended lectures on comparative literature. And after graduation, he would have ridden around in an imported sports car without having done the least to deserve it. Think about that. In, in America today, as folks are graduating and moving and going to their major cities for, for you know, their 20s, their 30s to get their career started and maybe technology or, and, you know, something else like that. You know, if you've been in that story and you've had the privilege of mobility, 
What was the impact of your leaving your home? What if you were forced to stay? It's kind of the Václav Havel story here is that he didn't leave and he stayed in Prague. He didn't have a choice. But it is interesting to think about as far as mobility versus impact. In his 20s and early 30s, Václav wrote a series of plays. And this is the playwright piece. So he's kind of graduated from his stagehand role. Um, he's kind of a long way from Harvard and Oxford, but he's, you know, he's, he's intelligent. There is no doubt about that. And you can't, you can, you can remove an individual like this from mobility and you can remove them from the path forward. Um, but, but this person's not going to stop thinking. He wrote these three plays, The Garden Party, The Memorandum, and The Increased Difficulty of Concentration. Three fantastic plays that were understood by their audiences as critiques of the Soviet regime in Czechoslovakia. He talks about stifling automatism. This is a favorite term of Havel's, and I want to talk about this for a second. These three plays, Memorandum, Increased Difficulty of Concentration, and The Garden Party, all three have this theme of automatism, an inhuman, corporate, cold, bureaucratic language that he labels automatism. And these three plays, they were produced abroad and you know, picked up by, you know, in New York and London and all over the world. These plays are in vogue as examples of a cultural thaw, a awakening, the breadcrumbs of this corner of the world coming back from where they were and what would they would have been in 1938 when in 1936 when Vaslav is born. It's kind of this, you know, Prague is still Prague type of story and the world really latches on to this. And it goes on to become emblems of the student kind of upheaval that forces Ivan Konev to return to squander the Prague Spring. These college students, they come to life and then hard communism has to bring them back down. A lot of that is already Václav Havel's words and critiques and understanding in an acute way of automatism. And we're going to talk about that. Automatism. In, in legal terms, insane automatism is caused by a disease of the mind, while non-insane automatism is linked to external factors, such as a blow to the head or an injection or a drug. So it's, it's kind of this idea of like you're not in control of yourself. Um, in art surrealist kind of painters surrealist automatism is a is a label of its own it's a method of art making in which the artist suppresses conscious control over the art making process allowing the unconscious mind to have great sway over the brush over the actions a contemporary 2020 way to kind of understand what Havel's trying to say here automatism what is this what is this theme it's a bit opaque um honestly the best example of this is likely via the the 
the phone or the device that you're using to listen to me talk to you on this podcast. (laughs) Ask yourself, is there anything in your life that you don't really like to think about or that you choose not to think about? You put your blinders on. But if you did, like, think about it for a few minutes, you would self-admit, yeah, this is causing me damage and this is probably also not good for society. Um, Is it easier to just go along with it because that's what everything is? kind of in encouraging automatism was a label that Havel used in language to combat the communist strategy of normalization. We've talked about that a lot. Normalization, this droneifying of the Czech people. Havel understood that if he could put a label on what that experience was, that then the people would be able to understand this isn't good control. This is actually extremely manipulative over us. Um, a contemporary example continuing automatism in 2020, you have to wonder, how would Václav Havel have responded to Netflix's Social Dilemma documentary about the subconscious control that social media casts over all of our lives? Václav critiques over and over and over again. He writes three plays about the panorama of everydayness where authoritarianism festers and hard truths are harder to see and even harder to act on where authoritarianism festers. Marshall Konev you know, Grand Marshal Ivan Konev, the liberator of Prague, as, as we've talked about now for many a podcast. He invaded Prague and instituted the period of hardline normalization. It lasted for 20 years. That's the environment Havel was critiquing. Havel's automatism, the key theme from these three plays, created this language necessary for this Hegelian climb up the spiral spiral staircase that makes 1989 possible. The language allowed for the people to evolve their consciousness forward and able to critique the system that they were living in. And it is in direct conversation about being able to critique the social constructs that you live within. How are you able to do that? And that's something that many, 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 many generations of dissidents have struggled to get that message out. Beyond the plays, the three plays, there were even more ambitious, if you can believe it, even more ambitious and more lasting examples of this. And these are Havel's dissident essays. Two standouts, absolutely extremely valuable. One is an open letter to the communist leader, Gustav Hozak. He would have been like the proxy ruler over, over Prague. And then the second would be, in quotes, and we quoted this in, in episode two, the power of the powerless, which served as the most extensive theoretical declaration for Charter 77 and all the Czech resistance that would grow to become the Velvet Revolution. 1989, people in the streets, hovel to the castle, hovel to the castle. Berlin Wall isn't the only part of the Iron Curtain being pulled back. You know, it gets a lot of the publicity in America because that's where, and you know, we talk about it and it's in our history classes, but 
Hovel to the Castle, Hovel to the Castle, 1989, the Velvet Revolution. This is the moment, in addition to the fall of the Berlin Wall, that should be first bullet point in your history books about this era. Hovel's prose, his writing, this essay, The Power of the Powerless, it reached its audience in subterranean ways, like under the hood of darkness, like blink twice in your left eye if you've read the most recent essay by Václav Havel. Um, Handwritten, typewritten, carbon copied manuscripts in the middle of books that weren't actually about the topic, but you turn to page three and then here's here's a letter from Václav Havel. Um, Books that are getting published abroad all over Europe, all over the world, and then being shipped under the cover of darkness back into Prague and back into Czechoslovakia for the people to consume this information and also broadcast on Radio Free Europe. Um, RFE RFE is an amazing history to dig into all of its own. Um, This period is just ripe for lessons for us in 2020 and perhaps for for all of time as far as how do we get the message out to the people when those that are controlling the message is um, is obstructionist at best. Havel synthesized ideas that were in the air in Prague. And as it turned out, those same ideas that were in the air in Prague that he was able to understand and put labels on turns out are also prevalent throughout the rest of the totalitarian world. In those two essays, he describes the entropy of life under communist oppression. The just smorgasbord, the myriad of everyday means by which every man and every woman, in quotes, is subjugated to a prolonged and thorough process of violation, enfeeblement, and anesthesia. In the best known you know, passage from The Power of the Powerless, and this gets talked about, right? So if you're thinking, you know, what are, you know, outside of the three plays, automatism, great, got it. Ozymandias has hammered that point home, moving on, the relationship to, okay, kind of social dilemma, you know, social media in 2020, kind of understand there might be some subconscious manipulation that's taking place in these constructs on purpose. How do we fight back against that? And then in The Power of the Powerless, Havel asks his reader to imagine the manager of a grocery grocery store who puts a sign in his window, among the onions and carrots. What is this grocery store owner trying to communicate to the world? Is he genuinely enthusiastic about the idea of unity among the workers of the world? So he's kind of being flippant here where your grocery stores, your locations, your newspaper stands, maybe they're, you know, flying a rainbow flag. Maybe they have the brand Black Lives Matter. Maybe they have, you know, a sign, make, who knows, uh, make America great again on the complete opposite side of the spectrum, of course. But the, the label is there and that perhaps some people are just doing it to fit in without kind of thinking twice about it, but but just because that's the motion of the time and of the place, you know, is that person and is that store owner genuinely enthusiastic about the idea of unity among the workers of the world? 
or genuinely enthusiastic about the idea of, you know, investing in infrastructure and actually doing the things that America needs to be great again, or investing in solving systemic racism? You know, is it one thing to put the flag in the store between the onions and, and, and the carrots? Is it another to act in truth and to act and to join the people in the movement? Um, Vaslav goes on with this. He says he does it because these things must be done if one is to get along in life. It is one of the thousands of details that guarantee that store owner a relatively tranquil life, todo tranquilo, path of least resistance. Vaslav Havel is talking about this. He's talking about it's not enough just to wear the label. The label is in of itself a mechanism to slow us all down, to make us think that we're participating in a way that is actually moving the needle. But if we're just putting the, you know, the black box on our Instagram feed one time and saying, you know, black lives matter one time on your feed, and then you move on with your day, Vaslav Havel is saying that that's a part of the problem too. Even if your message or your moment of affinity is powerful, are you actually living in truth of the movement? And that's what he's challenging. And it's a challenge to read this and to think about our own time and social media where everything has a hashtag, everything has a label, everything is connected to a movement, but are we acting in that unity moving forward and getting the results that we need to actually change what we're describing? The power of totalitarian ideology, Vaslav Havel writes, is that it's a veil behind which human beings can hide their own fallen existence, their trivialization, their adaptation to the status quo. It is rather like a collection of traffic signals and directional signs giving the process shape and structure. This metaphysical order guarantees the inner coherence of the totalitarian power structure. It is the glue holding it together, its binding principle, the instrument of its discipline. Thinking about that quote from The Power of the Powerless, and again, this imagining scenario, a manager of a grocery store that puts a sign in the window about unity of the workers of the world, then that sign sits between the onions and the carrots. And he says onions and carrots repeatedly. And he mentions this in his career. And you go back in his writings, this was something that he really thought was a mundane but articulate example. What is he trying to communicate to the world? Is he genuinely enthusiastic about the idea of unity among the workers of the world? No, Vaslav is saying he does it because that's just an action that he's moving through the motions on. And he's saying that those motions that we're moving through, even sometimes if we think that the sign is the right sign, the automatism behind just doing that without the thought, without the truth, without the movement and understanding, that that is where the authoritarianism is festering. That is important for us in 2020, especially with the power of social media and the power of brands and the power of labels. It's even more powerful today than it was when Vaslav Havel was writing about this. Havel describes dissent not as an alternative political ideology, but rather dissent is an individual's insistence on our own humanity 
on thinking and doing things, even in the smallest day-to-day, doing things honestly, in truth, acting in truth. In the mid-70s, Havel had to make his living by working in a brewery. So, you know, he's he's stagehand status, he's working on his plays, he's got some plays coming out, but he also has a day job, so he's working at a brewery, which is very, very fitting for, you know, a founding father of the Czech Republic to have some beer along the way. You can imagine that he's doing quite a few of these beers at this time. And in The Power of the Powerless, he re- recalls this you know, living experience as well of working at the brewery. Uh, he recalls a dispute at, at the plant, at the production center. A worker there spoke out to the bosses about ways to improve production. Uh, this worker was not an intellectual, wasn't a political rebel, but just someone with an idea of how to produce beer more efficiently. This person dared to defy his bosses and that could not be tolerated. All too often, Václav Havel writes, living normally begins as an attempt to do your work well and ends with being branded as an enemy of society. Hey boss, I've got an idea. I think that we should you know, do it this way. Well, you, what do you know? Go back, stay in line. Um, the types of folks who raise their hand and say, I see truth in this assembly line and this is how we fix it. And I'm going to, knowing that I'm not by rank or tenure, the person who can solve this issue by way of what the dotted lines are in our corporate structure, but I don't care about any of that. I can fix it. So that's what I'm going to do. That's kind of the example of the truth and the almost utility of truth in your day-to-day life, in the mundane moments that helps you kind of distinguish what you're acting on in moments of truth versus the kind of mirage of uh, going through the motions and doing the same thing every single day, day in, day out, day out. You may have best intentions. You may be in your mind doing what's great for, for your movement or the movement that you have affinity for, but unless you act on it, what is the character of your feelings? So these are the words, right? So these are the conversations about action versus follow the leader, action versus follow the leader, uh, action versus the traffic lights. You know, sometimes don't use the crosswalk if it's a, you know, if I have to walk to the end of the road and I have to go up the crosswalk and that's the only way to do it. Otherwise, like if I just walked across the street, it would be faster. The types of people that know that it's faster and just walk across the street, they look both ways, they can handle themselves. That's what Vaslav is kind of describing. Like, we need that in order to disrupt this authoritarian regime that's in control of our country. We need to be able to step out of line and do some stuff. These are the words, <laughs> no surprise, that led Vaslav Havel to imprisonment. <laughs> he, I mean, he's thrown in jail for five years for the, after those three plays and after, you know, uh, uh, these two essays and then going into these examples of the power of the powerless... Um, yes, he is thrown in, uh, to jail for five years. Um, I want to talk just for a second. In addition to those essays, you know, the words of the charter 77, the charter 77 is just a really simple statement. It basically was an agreement 
And it started with 242 other signatories in addition to Václav Havel calling for the end of the Soviet rule over the Czech people. And it was basically a pledge of signing my name, declaration of independence style. This is my John Hancock. This is what I believe. Come get me. Uh, The power of saying, do your worst. I'm signing my name to these words. I'm a dissident, and I join these dissidents. Uh, I think about the mayors in 2020. I think about the mayors of Prague today who are now hiding in jails in fear for Moscow's reach into their parks and recs issues. I think about you know these mayors who are getting death threats, who are getting poison threats, who are hiding even from their own family so that word doesn't get out about where they are. And, you know, I think about maybe this is an assumption from me, from my desk here, but I don't know this, but, you know, assuming prison infrastructure of Prague is similar to what it was in the 1980s, there is a good chance that Václav Havel's jail cell, in which he was in prison for five years, from his words on Soviet rule, are the same jail cell walls protecting Czech mayors today from a Soviet threat of their, as we joked earlier about, uh, liquidation was the old Soviet word that the mayor of Prague 6 was uh, bringing into vogue again in 2020. And, you know, he's kind of poking fun at at, at Vladimir Putin for, for acting in that way, but hiding in the jail cells of Prague... The same jail cells that, you know, inspired these words from Václav Havel that inspired the movement itself. It's it's a little bit of a it's a little bit of a historical coming together moment. And the idea of walls between us and walls around us, whether it be for safety or whether it be for imprisonment, um, these stories are connected in those walls undeniably. And in these walls, Václav Havel, you know, he gets arrested. The power of, uh, of the powerless comes out. He's thrown in jail for five years. He's in there. He doesn't stop writing. These guys are the real deal. We are taking down, you know, we're, we're getting our country back. Uh, he, kept, he keeps writing. He, he writes letters under terrific pressure. And it's, this is interesting. We talked in, earlier in episode one about you know, strange bedfellows, these these communists and these Nazis coming together to support and protest the, the editing or the removal of Ivan Konev's statue because it is an affront on their legacies and how they identify and what their history is in their own mind and in their reality. So they're coming out and they're protesting. It's their semblance of unity. They're coming together. Strange bedfellows, the communists, the hard communists and Nazis. Uh, Vaslav Havel, when he's thrown into a communist jail, uh, after writing The Power of the Powerless, his warden of that jail is a former uh, German soldier, a former pro-Nazi sympathizer who's now already in the communist ranks. They just fought this war. They're now occupying Prague. They have now brought in the failed fascists into some of their prison security ranks. Weird bedfellows. I'm not sure that communist or, you know, the fear of socialism or some of the labels that the West puts on what's coming out of Moscow and coming out of Berlin, you know, these are, 
these are bad people and they're more than happy to work together to keep someone like Václav Havel down. So he has a pro-Nazi, Nazi uh, expat who's now working for, for the Soviets under this Ivan Konev regime. And uh, so, so Havel has to write in code. He has to use different kind of tricks of the trade to get his, his letters out of jail. Um, and this Nazi reads everything that he writes. And I guess one good thing to say about this being his prison warden is he did a terrible job of editing and a terrible job of looking for clues because uh, <laughs> all of these pieces are actually making it out of jail. So imprisoning Václav Havel doesn't actually do that much in this five years. He's able to, um, you know, Václav says this, and this is a little foul for you at home, but he says that while working, working in the laundry, while you know imprisoned, um, that Václav Havel had to hide his rough drafts in mountains of dirty sheets stained by the millions of unborn children, uh, and he would revise them during a noon break while trying to avoid being seen by informers. He's a funny guy. There's a, there's a certain type of comedy that's coming out of, you know, the Prague people who are oppressed by um, these authoritarian, you know, prison guards and the informants and the spy networks around them. Uh, to have the thought to yourself of, you know, stained by the millions of unborn children, it's hilarious. Uh, so to keep that sense of comedy and to keep that sense of humanity, you know, you hear that from the mayor of Prague 6, and we joked about that in earlier episodes, and we're here seeing that in Václav Havel's imprisonment as well. Um, there's a real utility to maintaining that humanity and maintaining that comedy and truth through all of the difficulty of, of, of the structures that surround us. Um, after Havel's time in jail, he writes that, you know, the system, the Soviet system of rule could not tolerate even the slightest challenge because its existence depended for its survival on unanimous support. There cannot be any cracks in a lie. If everything is a lie, everything must be true or else the house of cards falls down. I think about our 2020 state. We're post-election at this time. What is true? What is not true? Uh, I think that you would perhaps start to look at some similarities between what Havel is describing here. The existence of these lies is that they are all believed and that that makes them true is that they're unanimously supported. It's dangerous. Uh, Havel knew that the knock on his door could come at any time. Kafkaesque, as we, as he said earlier, um, in an interview, he says that he'd put together something he calls his emergency packet containing cigarettes, a toothbrush, toothpaste, soap, some books and t-shirt paper, a laxative, and a few other small things. Uh, Vasily Havel takes this bundle with him every time that he leaves his house, even while president. I wonder if, you know, the mayor, Andrzej Kolar, the mayor of Prague 6, after his imprisonments in 2020, will be looking over his shoulder for the rest of his life as well. Vasily Havel said that his presidential memoir I mean, this guy's amazing. He says that his presidential memoir would be somewhere between Henry Kissinger and Charles Bukowski. In a sense, he's been writing this memoir his entire life. 
all of his letters, all of his essays, his plays, his his Charter seventy seven, you know, with with a couple of hundred other you know signatories, the Velvet Revolution, hundreds of thousands of people in the streets who have been hearing these whispers of Václav Havel for years and years now through the plays, through the essays, through the letters snuck out of jail, and they're saying Václav, Aharad, Václav to the to the castle, Václav to the castle. Um, a short piece from 1987. Uh, Vaslav writes about how he, and this is kind of the Charles Bukowski-esque, Henry Kissinger-esque, you know, merger that we we see we see, and as he writes about his his life, in his own life, he writes about how in 1987 at the National Theater in Prague, he he sees Gorbachev at the same event who was in town for a summit with, with Czech party leaders, he sees Mikhail Gorbachev and he writes that as he caught the sight of the Soviet leader amongst the crowds and bodyguards, he says this, he feels this. All of a sudden I find myself feeling sorry for him. I try to imagine the life he must have led all day long in the company of his hard-faced guardians, no doubt with a full agenda, endless meetings, negotiating sessions and speeches and having to talk to a great many people remember who's who say the witty things but at the same time make sure they're the correct things to say things that the sensation seeking outside world can't get a hold of and use against him he looks at Gorbachev and sees automatism he sees a lack of truth and he sees it on his face in the crowd. And he sees it in how he carries himself. The lack of will, even at the top of this party. That's how wrong this structure is. A long-standing diplomat, diplomat and ally of Havel's, um, he said this during the final days of Václav Havel's presidency. And this is the end of our era. It means the end of transition. It means the end of changes and setbacks and new beginnings. You name it. What's going to happen now is that we will become a country like any other in Europe. Maybe I'm cynical, but these moments in history for a person or a country, they come and go. It's like Andy Warhol's 15 minutes of fame and ours was Havel's presidency, especially the first years. Sometime in the future, it may come again, but at this point, we are no more glamorous than Belgium or the Netherlands. As this diplomat and long-standing ally of Václav Havel writes, unhappy the land that is in need of heroes. Unhappy the land that is in need of heroes. I hope we don't need another. This has been part four of the five-part podcast series titled An Ordeal in Prague. Before we get to part five, these words still remain. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty in despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. This has been Ozymandias. See you on part five.